Good morning. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. Thank you, choir. It's good to have you guys back. We missed you. They they work really hard, so they took a, a much deserved break. Um, so we're, we're glad to back. Worship team, excellent today. Um, that was that was fantastic. Um, but we're glad you guys are all here um, with us this morning. Melissa wanted me to say a special thank you to everyone, uh, to the ladies especially. I'll miss someone, uh, Joanna and, and Jenny and and Sophie and Carolyn, um, Vivian, everyone who put in such a hard, so much hard work and time and money into the shower yesterday. She was. Greatly encouraged. Um, I can't walk in my office. There are so many diapers. Um, so that's, I'm not complaining. That's a good thing. Emma just like laid down in the middle of the minute and loved it. Um, so thank you guys. We were we really were blessed and, and felt um, definitely taken care of. So we appreciate that. Um, this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter nine. Mark nine verses forty two through fifty. Uh, it'll be on page 845 inside your, your pew Bibles. Um, I am both excited and terrified um, about this message. I'm excited because I always love getting to, um, you know, to preach God's Word. I love getting to open it up and wrestle with it. I especially love preaching on, on difficult passages. But I'm, I'm terrified because the subject um, of our passage this morning is one of the most serious and sobering one in, in all of of scripture, because our our passage this morning is about hell. I did not enjoy um, studying for this sermon this week. I do not enjoy um, preaching this sermon. Um, outside of of the Bible's teaching on homosexuality and the sanctity of human life um, in the womb, there are there are no doctrines that are more offensive um, to modern. Westerners than, than the doctrine of, of God's wrath or God's judgment or, or this idea of hell. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, a man named R.C. Sproul, he, he writes, I can't think of anything more politically incorrect than to preach in 21st century America on the wrath of God or the justice of God or the doctrine of hell. I was reading about one pastor's conference recently, you know, big conference, bunch of pastors. One of the guys was, was speaking on the topic of whatever happened to hell. And as an illustration, you know, he just asked all the pastors, there, like, how many of you have, have preached a sermon on hell? Zero. None of them had preached a sermon on hell. People today do not want to talk about this stuff. They do not want to hear about this stuff. If you were to, to go to a class that, that taught you how to build and to grow a church, they're probably not going to mention preach sermons on hell as one of the best ways to, uh, to grow and build your church. In fact, the, the marked absence of hell from pulpits today is exactly because people are trying to soften Christianity and make it more appealing. Because, as, we, as we've talked about a number of times before, remember, Jesus is back on the rise, right? Jesus is kind of starting, he's, get, he's back in. It's cool to like Jesus again. Young people especially are starting to kind of have more of an attraction and, and appeal um, towards Jesus. Or at least part of Jesus, right? They love turn the other cheek and help the poor and love your neighbor Jesus, right? They're, they're great with long-haired, always smiling, wise, hippie, moral teacher Jesus, right? They love the idea that God is love, right? So, so the thinking is you focus on those things that people like, and you can probably get more people to come and, and build a nice, big, kind of successful church, right? But as strong as people's attraction is for this idea of, of God is love, right, their hatred of the idea of God as wrath or God as judge is, is even stronger, right? So though it would be my desire and though it would frankly be simpler to, to just skip this topic entirely, right, 
we preach expositionally for this very purpose. Right? We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So it is not me who is setting the schedule. It is not me who is determining what we do or do not talk about. It's next in the text, so it's next in the sermon. Jesus talked about hell, and a lot, by the way, so we are going to talk about hell. But, again, this is an intimidating sermon to preach, and there are two extremes that I want to avoid in, in my attempt to preach a sermon on hell. Right? First, I want to try to avoid the extreme of what often happens in church today, which is kind of an attempt to soften the blow, an attempt to so qualify hell or explain away hell that we make it sound, you know, not like such a big deal. I want to avoid completely ignoring the issue like so many churches today do. But I desire just as strongly to avoid the other extreme, right? The other extreme that is sometimes found in, in many fundamentalist churches, which is an almost seemingly gleeful way in which the pastors talk about hell and the faith of the laws, right? They get all excited, they start pounding the pulpit and getting all loud and excited when they talk about damnation, right? Uh, I have a problem with that. When I was in college, right, I at UNC in the South, there's this place called the Pit, right? That's like, it's the free speech zone on campus, whatever that means. Um, so that's where everyone kind of gathers and congregates and passes through. Students are, it's kind of at the very heart of the campus. And people come in and they speak and they, they talk, they exchange ideas with students. And there were a number of guys that were there pretty regularly that had become pretty notorious, and they were known as the pit preachers. Right? I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Lots of colleges have these things. These guys have these big old leather belts, kind of with this thing on them, this big giant pole that's set down in the belt, they wear wore on their waist. And there's about this 10-foot giant sign up waving in the air. If it was windy, it was hard to hold up. And all that the sign had on it was just listed category after category after category of the type of people that were going to hell. Right? And listen, I was on that list like four times. There were like people who watched TV. One of them was sports fans, like trouble. <laughs> I really like sports. Like, I don't like, well, I'm on the list. What's, what's happening here? But the point is, these guys stood there in the pit and with a smile on their face, they joyfully yelled at people as they walked by, declaring that they were going to hell and just seemed to take delight in it. Listen, I had a major problem with these guys. They weren't preaching the gospel in the first place. And they were overjoyed, it seemed, that people might be going to hell. That is a very sinful way to address the topic of hell. And a very unchristlike and unbiblical way to address the topic of hell. When, when Paul talks about the unsaved in Romans 9, verse 3, he writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. In Luke 19.41, Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, and, he, and he's about to talk on, on the judgment that is coming to Jerusalem, and it says that he weeps. Right? Listen, this is not something that we take lightly, and this is not something that we enjoy. Hell is not something that we joke about. It is not something that we wish on anyone. I, I'm embarrassed to admit that back to my school, my, my university's fight song, right, sung at every single sporting event. So at a football game, 50,000 people gather around and sing this song at the end of every game. And the last line of the song ends in this chant, Go to Hell, Duke. Right? And I am embarrassed to admit that as a, as a freshman, as a young student, I was a little uncomfortable with it. But I just, I jumped right in. I loved it. Until, thankfully, by God's grace, he kind of convicted me and brought me to the realization of, of what it was we were saying. This is not 
something we joke about. Right? I don't care how much I dislike you, and it, it's a lot. I don't care how much you dislike a person or how mad you are at someone. That is never an acceptable thing for a Christian to say to someone else. Because if hell is real, you're saying about the worst possible thing that you could say. So again, we don't enjoy talking about this, we don't take this lightly, but we must talk about this because Jesus talks about it, right? And I think that understanding hell is actually important to helping us better understand God and better understanding the gospel. Right? So what we're going to do is first I want to explain what hell is. Right? There's just a lot of confusion and misunderstanding um, when it comes to hell, right? It's a, it's a dark cave with fire and some red guy with horns and a pitchfork that just kind of pokes people, right? That's just, that, that caricature of hell is not helpful, and it just makes us look absolutely ridiculous, right? So first, we're going to talk about the what of hell, and then I want to spend a lot of time talking about the why of hell. Right? I want to explain to you, biblically and logically, why I think hell, as difficult as it is, makes perfect sense. And then finally, I want us to look at the who, right? If hell, then who ends up there? And that is obviously a very important question for all of us. So we're, we're going to attempt to do all of this from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Right? So look down there in your copy of God's Word and follow along as I read. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And Father, we, it, is, it is grace that you have um, revealed this to us. Father, we confess our, our often uh, distaste um, for the doctrine of hell. Father, forgive me. Um, for how often I've struggled and wrestled with this very topic. Father, show us the truth uh, and the reality of hell. But Father, I pray that you would show us um, so much more clearly your great love and your great mercy. But Father, I pray that you would speak and that you would work in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, so we've got to start with the what, right? What is hell? Right? The word is used three times in our passage. And hell is the English word used to translate the Greek word Gehenna. Right? And Gehenna is the Greek translation of the Aramaic word, which just kind of means the, the Valley of Hinnom. Right? It's, it, it's a specific valley just to the south of Jerusalem. And this valley had a very disturbing history. Remember back about a thousand years earlier, back to the kind of the heyday of, of the kingdom of Israel. You had David, you had Solomon, everything was going great. And then after that, everything just kind of falls apart. Because these terrible, terrible kings led the people astray. Right? Two of these kings in particular, Ahaz and Manasseh, they began the practice of human sacrifice. Right? And they began that practice by sacrificing their sons to the pagan god Moloch. 
And they did it in this valley, right? The Valley of Hinnom in Gehenna. Right? That happens in 2 Kings 16 and 21. Right? They're, they're sacrificing their, their children to this God. Then Jeremiah kind of comes along, God brings him. He, he speaks out strongly against the practice, obviously. And finally, King Josiah puts an end to the practice in 2 Kings 23. He desecrates the valley so that it could never be used for such terrible things again. And he does this by making the valley into Jerusalem's garbage dump. Right? And don't think garbage dump like, like today. Right? No garbage dump is nice. But our garbage dumpers are all, our dumps are a lot nicer than theirs. We've got all these uh, plastics and paper and clothes. Got all these nice, pretty, clean things. No, when we talk 2,000 years ago, dump. We're talking this was the place where animal carcasses were thrown. This is the place where criminals were dragged after they were executed and their bodies were cast aside. This was a nasty disgusting and dirty place, right? And they didn't have like the amazing trash technology that we have today. So, so to keep it from overflowing, right, they had to constantly be burning the trash in Gehenna. There were flames roaring 24 hours a day in this dump. There were worms working on those corpses 24 hours a day in this terrible place. Thus, even 400 years before Jesus, by the time of Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, the very last verse of the book says, For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. So Gehenna had already become a Jewish metaphor for the place of final punishment. Right? What we refer to today as hell. So Mark is borrowing Isaiah's language, and he is describing hell here, here as a place of devouring fire and carnivorous worms. And in the Bible, there are a bunch of different kind of symbols that are used to refer to hell. Fire, worms, darkness, chains, weeping, gnashing of teeth, separation, no rest, destruction, goes on and on. And one of the questions you know, you're often asked is, well, you know, do you think these, these symbols, do you think these descriptions are literal? Like, is hell, does hell actually consist of, of fire? Well, honestly, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think that they're literal, right? I think this is figurative, symbolic language, right? And usually when you tell someone this, they kind of breathe a sigh and they're like, oh, phew, all right, it won't be fire and worms and all these terrible things. Well, listen, you've misunderstood the point of symbols, if, if that's what you're thinking, Right? We use symbolic or figurative language precisely because we cannot do full justice to the thing that we are trying to describe. Right? Usually, the thing we are describing is so much more than the figurative language we use. So, think, take God, for example. Right? Human language cannot adequately explain the person of God. So, we use symbols. Right? We talk about his hands and his feet and his eyes. Right? He doesn't have these things like we do. But these are attempts to describe him in human language. These are attempts to describe what is a far greater reality. So in the same way, the terrible symbols of fire and darkness and the like are, are probably not literal. But whatever hell is, I promise you that it is far worse than anything that we can imagine. And anything that human language can describe. So whatever it is, it is clear from the Bible's description of it that hell is a place of unimaginable suffering and misery. And it is also clear, as we'll get into later, that it is unending. And it is eternal, right? Hold on, hold on with me there. A lot of people have 
have a problem with that. But we'll come back to it. I'll, I'll explain that later. So if you wanted just a very basic biblical definition of what hell is, it is quite simply the place of eternal conscious punishment for sinners. Right? Hell is the place of punishment for sinners. Right? So that is a very brief overview of what hell is. Now listen, I know you still have all of the questions, and I think we're going to fill in a lot of those holes in the, in the why sections. It's not hard to understand what hell is. But sometimes we really struggle to understand why hell. And I am right there with you. I have wrestled and struggled with this uh, many times um, in my life. So that's, that's what I want to spend a lot of our time on. I want to give you three reasons why. Right? There's, there's more. This is not an exhaustive list. Um, but, but for the sake of time, uh, we're going to focus on these three um, today. First, I want to give you a why that I think will appeal primarily to Christians. Right? It will appeal to primarily those who have some sort of interest or attraction to Jesus. And then I'm going to give you two reasons that I hope will appeal to everyone. And anyone in here who might think that everything I'm saying right now is completely ridiculous. Well, listen, I'm with you. I'm, I'm going to explain. Right? So let's start with the first reason. The first reason that I think hell is reasonable to believe in is quite simply because Jesus himself clearly believed in hell. Right? Gehenna, the word translated hell. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times are, are found on the lips of Jesus. Right? He teaches about hell more than any other person in the Bible. He teaches about hell significantly more than he teaches about heaven. Jesus believed in hell. Why is that important? Well, it goes back to something we've talked about a number of times. You remember the old President Thomas Jefferson? I mentioned him, right? He kind of liked Jesus, but what did he do? There were other parts he didn't like. Remember, so he kind of, he like, I don't like this part of the Bible, so he cut it out. I don't like this part of the Bible, so he cut it out. And he created his own Bible without all the stuff that, that he didn't like. But as we saw and talked, right, it, it, it doesn't work that way, right? You, you can't pick and choose when it comes to Jesus, right? It is either all or nothing with Jesus. He preaches on love and forgiveness and serving others. But he also claims to be God, right? And he also preaches on the reality of hell. So you see, he can't just be a nice moral teacher, right? He either is who he says he is, or he's, he's a madman, right? There is no middle ground. Listen, if you think about it, imagine there was a guy out on the street. I'm not going to listen to a guy who was teaching some pretty cool things about taking care of the poor. Like, I could get down with that. But then he was also claiming to be God and saying that he had to worship him, right? No, listen I'm instantly going to stop listening to that guy if he claims to be God, unless he actually is God, right? And that's the case that Mark has been making for these long nine chapters, that Jesus is God, and then what that fact then demands of us. I don't have time to go over all the reasons why Jesus is God, but if you're wondering and you're interested in exploring this, simply go and look at the resurrection, Right? We rise and we fall with the resurrection. Paul says, if the resurrection did not happen, then we're all idiots, we're all stuck in our sins, and I have wasted my entire life. Right? But I think that it's pretty evident that it did happen, and I think I can make a very strong case why. Right? And if you want to know, come find me afterwards, and we'll, we'll run through kind of a list of things, the facts of the resurrection that every scholar, Christian and non, agree on. And then I'll kind of try to show you why, why the resurrection is the only explanation that accounts for all of those facts. 
Right? But the point is, Scripture makes a very strong case that Jesus is God. I'm declaring to you today that He is. And if that is the case, think about it. If He's God, if He came back from the dead, right? Logically, it follows then that we should listen to Him, right? Right? And that means also that we should listen to Him when it comes to hell. Remember, faith is simply trusting God, right? Even when we don't fully get it at times. So faith in this respect means trusting God's superior knowledge and goodness when it comes to hell, even if we are bothered by the idea, right? So that's the first why of hell. Jesus himself, the founder of our faith, he believed in hell. Let's, let's look at the second. I think that, that hell makes sense logically and biblically because of justice, right? What is justice? Lots of people talk about justice these days. Right? Justice is simply what is right. right. The Hebrew word is mishpat. And its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably and fairly. It means acquitting someone or punishing someone on the merits of the case. So think about it. When someone commits a crime, right, it is right that they be brought to justice. Right? That they answer and pay for what they have done. And the degree of the punishment depends on the severity of the crime. So obviously, murder is punished much more severely than, than slander or some other crime. And we all kind of have this natural sense of, of and desire for justice. If you think about it, were, were someone to, to murder your mother, you would expect there to be justice. Right? You would expect a judge to punish that crime. Every single one of us, when we read the newspaper or we watch the news, when we see all of the awful things going on out there, we all feel this desire welling up within us. There must be justice for those terrible things that people have done. And that is what hell is. Right? Hell is simply the place of justice. Right? It is the place of punishment for our crimes, our, our sins against God and against each other. The, the existence of justice, the idea of justice, I think, demands hell. If we expect a good judge to punish crime, why would we expect anything less from God? Yes, God is love. Everyone is down with the idea of God as love. Right? If someone comes to you and they're like, oh, that sounds so, you sound so intolerant. I believe in a God of love. Your question for them should be, why? Why do you believe in a God of love? Because listen, I've studied all the other religions. I've read all the other books. The idea of God as love is a Christian idea that comes from the Bible. Right? They're, they're borrowing our, our theology by claiming that God is, is love. That, that, that's coming from this. Right? So if you want uh, an idea, a God of love, and it's coming from there, you've also got to take into account that this also reveals God as a God who is holy and a God who is just. Right? God is love, but God is equally just. Listen, try and go to, to Africa or the Middle East or somewhere where there's actual suffering. Try to go and tell someone who is really facing suffering and injustice that, that there is no final and ultimate justice. Right? Try and tell them that these terrible wrongs that are happening to them won't ultimately be made right. And, and quite honestly, it takes a very affluent and a very comfortable culture like America 
to produce rich white philosophers who, who sit in their very big houses who have never experienced any sort of real hardship or suffering in their life to so easily dismiss the justice of hell. You remember a while back, we, we talked about Karl Marx, famous philosopher. He's famous for saying that, that religion is an opium of the people. Remember, we largely agree with, with that statement. We, we drew a distinction between religion and the gospel. But he's famous for saying religion is an opium of the people. Well, there's, there's a guy more recently, a, a Nobel Prize winning um, Polish man named Czesław Milosz. And he kind of challenged Marx's famous idea. And this is what he writes. He writes, now we are witnessing a change. A true opium of the people is the belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, our greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. But all religions recognize that our deeds are imperishable. Listen, it is hell. It is the promise of Romans 12, 19 that God will enact justice that frees us from not seeking vengeance and not punishing others ourselves. It is the promise that there will be justice that allows us to forgive, that allows us to do what Romans 12, 21 says, which is to help our enemies and to overcome evil with good. We can do that because we know that there is ultimate justice. We know that justice will be done. And listen, I, I'm tracking with you. Some of you are still, I'm just not with you. I, I, I don't get this. I, I, I kind of have some sort of attraction. I like some of these Christian things. Uh, some of them make a little bit of sense. But this whole hell thing, I, I just can't get down with it. But if you were to really, just, just think about it. If Christianity, if the gospel was actually true, right, we should expect it to offend, to offend everyone in some area. Right? If Christianity is not just the product of one particular culture, but if it is the, if it's actually the kind of transcultural truth from God, truth that transcends any one culture, then it should contradict every culture at some point. Because every culture is imperfect. Every culture is developing and changing. Every culture is wrong somewhere. So, people in our culture, modern Western culture, have a major problem with the doctrine of hell. But what is so interesting, that is that if you head east, if you head to, to more traditional cultures, these cultures have no problem whatsoever with the idea of hell. Because they believe very strongly in the concepts of justice. Hell is completely logical to them. But they struggle with some of the very things that we find most appealing about Christianity. Turn the other cheek is terribly offensive to a society that highly values justice. Many cultures really struggle to understand God's grace and God's mercy. They struggle with grace. We struggle with judgment. Are we going to be the ones to stand here and say, our culture's got it right, we're better than you guys, we have figured this Christianity thing out, we are going to be the final um, judge um, for, for it? And of course not, right? We're not anything above or better than other cultures. There are multiple different cultures. But if Christianity is the truth, then we should expect it to challenge us and offend us and to correct our thinking somewhere. This was one of those places for me. And this might be one of those places for you as well. 
right? So justice, right? I think that is a very important why of hell. But what is so inconsistent is that our culture today, if you think about it, especially young people, have this increasingly strong sense of justice, right? We love to, to take up the cause of the weak and the oppressed. The 99% complain about the 1%. Right? We're increasingly, activism is on the rise. We want to seek out and help the poor and give them equal opportunities. We want to give them the justice that they deserve. Our culture is starting to really care about justice, but it inconsistently still struggles with the doctrine of hell, which is the ultimate form of justice. Right? Hell is God's promise that there will be justice, that the bad guys won't get away and won't win, and won't get away with what they've done. That Hitler will have to pay for his crimes. That child molesters will have to answer for their perverse sins. Without hell, there can be no ultimate justice. And that's why hell is so terrible. Listen, I talk about it in this way sometimes, and, and I think this is accurate. The, the Bible does this occasionally. But sometimes we speak of hell as separation. Right? Hell is the, it is simply the absence of God. And in some sense, that is true. Right? God is the source of all that is good. And hell is us being cut off from the source. It is God removing all of that good from us. But, in another sense, what makes hell so terrible is the very presence of God. It is the presence of God executing judgment and rightly punishing sin, right? And enacting justice. So one of my great fears in this sermon, if you read through the text, it is weighty and serious. One of my great fears is that I will say anything to qualify or lessen the seriousness or terror of hell. Jesus is pretty clear here that hell will be a terrible place. Because it is there that sinners experience the full effects of God's wrath. Listen, we have difficulty swallowing that, right? But it is just. If there is crime, there must be punishment, right? And I think that that is one of the main reasons why hell makes sense. Because of justice. It is simply the place where crimes are paid for. And we can all agree that crimes should be paid for. Right, so that's the second reason. Let's, let's turn quickly to the third reason. Why hell, why I think hell makes sense and it's reasonable to believe in. And this will, this will clarify a few of the questions I think that may have popped up from, from the second point. The third why of hell is the eternality of the soul. Right? The third why of hell is because the soul is eternal. Right? And this is a fundamental Christian doctrine. Right, that God has created man in his image and likeness, that man has a soul, and that that soul lives forever. Right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Right? We all feel that. We all sense it. The vast majority of people throughout time have believed in the soul and that there is something more out there than just this life. C.S. Lewis, as is usually the case, he, he puts this better than I can in his book, Mere Christianity. Right? This, this has come to be called the, the argument from desire. Right? I think this is brilliant. The argument goes that we all have desires for things, right? obviously. We have hunger, right? so then there is such a thing as food which satisfies that hunger. Right? We have thirst, 
So there is such a thing as water, which satisfies that desire. There is such a thing as sexual desire. So there is such a thing as sex, which satisfies that desire. Well, the point is that if we have a desire, it logically follows then that something exists to satisfy that desire. And Lewis then very famously writes, he says, If I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Right? And I think that this is brilliant because we have all experienced this. Right? We've all had some really big thing coming up. Right? We've all had a new romance where we just had all these amazing butterfly feelings of, of elation and excitement. And this is it. This is going to be the one. This is going to change everything. Right? You know, a new job or, or a new vacation or, or that thing that if you just get it, it's going to take care of everything else. But what happens? Right? The fulfillment never quite pans out, does it? You wake up the next morning and you want more. Right? The, the almost spiritual longing that you had was never satisfied. No matter how good the thing was, we are always left wanting more. Right? No matter what we gain or what we accomplish or what we get, the next day we're always thinking, what's next? Jean-Paul Sartre, I've mentioned him a couple times, atheist philosopher, a really interesting guy, it's not the point, but he said, he even recognizes at one point, he says, there comes a point even when you look at Shakespeare and you look at Beethoven. All right, listen, one of the best writers in history and one of the best composers in history, right? The guys that are creating beauty. He says, there comes a time when you look even at Shakespeare and you look even at Beethoven and you think, is that really it? Right? There comes a time when even the greatest things that this world has to offer, you sit there and you think, really? Is that it? There's got to be something more. Right? And, and that's the point that Lewis is making. This unsatisfied desire that we feel is proof that we are meant for something else, something more than this world. It is proof that we are never designed to fit into this short 70 or 80 year window. God has put eternity into our hearts, and if we're honest with ourselves, we all feel it. Well, this fact, right, that the human soul is, is eternal helps to explain hell and is related to our previous point. I think the argument could basically go like this, right? Number one, if God is just, right? And two, if all have sinned. And three, if the soul is eternal, therefore, four, there must be a hell, right? If God is just, and if we are eternal, and if we are sinners, there must be a place where that is paid for. Hell is the necessary conclusion of the belief that people have souls and are eternal. Because think about it. The Bible asserts that all are sinners. You just you cannot deny that. Listen, I do tons of bad things. You do tons of bad things. We all know that we do. We all know that we're not that good. And what have we said before that sin is? Right? It is rejecting God. It is telling Him no. It is asserting our superiority over Him and doing what we want rather than what He wants. Right? It is simply us putting ourselves in the place that only God deserves to be and telling him to go away. And in a sense, hell is simply God telling us, okay. Right? It is God giving us exactly what we have asked for. Hell is the ultimate result of a life of continual rejection of God. C.S. Lewis once again writes, he says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? 
to leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid, that is what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So since we are eternal, hell is the logical outcome of a life of saying no to God. So I think it is right in one sense to say that we send ourselves to hell. Right? Hell is not God like gleefully dangling people over a fiery pit, excited to drop them in as they beg and, and plead with him to, to let them out. No, it is God giving sinners exactly what they've been seeking their entire lives. But I think it is also right in another sense to say that God absolutely does send people to hell. He is God. Right? He is the only good and righteous and just one. He is our creator. He has the right to do with us what he wants. And his justice demands that crime be paid for. God takes sin that seriously. Hell is simply the result of sin. And that's why Jesus gives us such a stern warning here. He could never mention it. He doesn't have to mention it. If it is true, it is grace that he tells us about it and warns us about it. One other thing real quick um, that I almost forgot that people sometimes complain. You're like, all right, I'm, I'm tracking with you a little bit, maybe, you might be thinking. All right, I'm starting to kind of see, understand a little bit of, of, of why hell makes sense. But why does it have to be eternal, right? How can it be fair to punish 70 or 80 years of sin with, with an eternal um, time period? And I hear you, That's, that is a difficult question. But there are, there are two kind of main reasons, I think, why. First, it's a, it's a point that I've made a couple times recently, that the severity of the punishment is dependent on the person the crime is committed against. So, if you commit a crime against the president, right, you're going to be punished much more severely than if you committed that same crime against me, right, because he's important and I'm not. People care about him. Nobody cares about me. Right? It's going to be punished more severely. So if you, you take that and apply that to God, he is the infinitely holy and glorious and eternal one. So crime committed against him is far more serious than we can possibly imagine. Crime committed against an eternal God merits eternal punishment. But, second... Such a question assumes that once people go to hell, that they all of a sudden stop sinning. Like, all right, they're sinners, and now they're in hell. Okay, now they're good, or they're morally neutral. No, listen, the sin continues. They were sinners in this life, and they will be sinners in the next. The sin continues, so the punishment continues, right? And I think that according to God, it is perfectly just, right? So I know that's, that's a very quick explanation of a very complicated doctrine, but I can, we can talk more afterwards if you would like, right? So that's kind of the, the third reason of, as to why hell, because of the eternality of the soul. If the hell, if the soul is eternal, it makes sense that there is somewhere for that hell to go, for that soul to go, if there is unpaid for crime. Right, for the sake of time, we've, we've got to jump forward. We've, we've got to move on to the who for just a few minutes. Right, Jesus gives us two categories of people in our passage um, who earn hell. The first is in verse 42. It is those who cause little ones to sin or tremble. Now listen, Jesus isn't just talking about children. If you go read the New Testament, he uses little ones multiple times to refer to, to Christians in general, to refer to his disciples or his followers. 
So he says that if you are the cause of another one's sin, if you are the cause of another one stumbling, it would be better for you to have a giant rock tied to your neck and for you to be thrown into the East River. Right? God takes sin seriously. Right? And he takes it very seriously how we treat and influence other people. In John 13, 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. Right? So the point is, how you treat another believer is how you treat Christ. In Acts 9, Saul has been persecuting the church right, and, and killing Christians. And Jesus shows up, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why have you been persecuting me? So be careful. Jesus considers your treatment of his people to be the same as your treatment of him. Right? So remember that the next time you're gossiping about or, or yelling at or getting in a fight with another Christian. Right? How you treat others is how you treat Christ. And consider this in the context of what we talked about last week. Remember last week was about greatness. And Jesus is teaching that greatness is, 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 is the service of others. And, and if we are serving others, right? Well, it's obviously going to be difficult to be causing others um, to sin and stumble. Right? The positive contrast in our verse this week is the previous verse from last time. He says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So love and serve one another and you will be blessed and rewarded. Right? That was last week. But the opposite must also be true then. Call someone who belongs to Christ to stumble or to sin, and it would be better off for you to die a miserable death, right? So what we do to others has serious ramifications for our eternal destination, specifically in relationship to sin. Are we leading people away from sin, or are we leading people towards it? And that then brings us to the second category of who. And this is the main point of the passage. Right? The implication of verses 43 through 48 is that sin leads to hell. Right? That is why Jesus' prescriptions for sin are so dramatic here. But of course, listen, Jesus is always frequently speaking in metaphors and figurative language. He is not speaking literally here. Right? I better not have any of you come back here next week missing eyes or hands because you are listening to what Jesus had to say. No, listen, that's not the point. Right? There are plenty of people that don't have eyes. There are plenty of people that don't have hands who do a fine job of continuing to sin. Right? Getting rid of those things is not going to take care of your sin problem. What is Jesus doing? He's illustrating a point. He, he's trying to teach through hyperbole, through and, and through an exaggeration. And it is an important life-saving point. He is saying that sin is so serious that you are to do whatever you have to do to fight it. All right, those who end up in hell are those who refuse to fight sin and give into it instead. Jesus says, cut it off, or you're going to end up there as well. Romans 3.23 says, All of us have sinned. You have, I have, we are all sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the, the penalty of sin is death. Right? And not just physical death. We all die physical deaths, but eternal spiritual death. And that's what hell is. 
We are sinners and God is just. Therefore, there must be a place for God's justice to be carried out. And that place is hell. And I really, if you think about it, it's really not all that far-fetched. Right? If, if there is a God, most people think that there is. If there is more to us than just these physical bodies, just these 70 short years, right? I've just given you a reason why that is the case. If we're all sinners, you can't deny that one. And if there is justice, something that we all long for and something that we all desire, then there must be a hell. Right? So we've seen the what, we've seen the why, and we've seen the who. But the question is, what's the point? Why? Why spend a whole sermon talking about hell? Why does Jesus give this very intense passage about hell? It's, it, it's a warning, right? Jesus' teaching here is meant to shake us out of our stupor. It is meant to wake us up from our sleep. Listen, I am speaking to Christians here, and I am speaking to non-Christians here. Because sometimes we Christians function basically as atheists. Like, we live our lives in a, a chosen ignorance, as if hell did not actually exist. Why spend a whole sermon talking about this? Because I want you to leave here asking yourself the question, just what if? I don't, I don't care if you don't buy it yet. Just what if? What if hell does exist? What if it exists? What does that mean for you? What implications should that have for your life? If you really believed in hell and that sinners separated from God were going to end up there, how would that change things for you? Because, listen, it should change things. Hell exists, right? And, and hell is what we all deserve. God would be perfectly just in sending every one of us there. Anything that I have in my life that is better than hell it is all grace. It is nothing that I deserve or it is all things that God has given to me based solely upon His goodness. We have all sinned. We, we know that. And there must be justice. Crimes must be paid for and hell is where that happens. Now listen, if you're a visitor here, this is your first time here, we, I do not want you to be intimidated by, by a brimstone and hellfire sermon or whatever you want to call it. Listen, this is the first time I have ever preached a sermon on hell. But we're preaching it because Jesus preaches about it. We're talking about it because Jesus considered it important enough to talk about. And we follow him. We listen to him. But I want you to notice, if you just kind of scan over the passage, notice that there is no resolution at the end there of Mark chapter 9. There is no good news. Right? He just kind of leaves things hanging there for his disciples to ponder. Right? And I thought about doing that, but I thought that would be awful. Right? And, I'm, and I'm not going to do that because one of the most important reasons why I wanted to do a hell sermon is because it is the existence of hell and the unimaginable terror of hell that shows us just how much God loves us. What in the world am I thinking? How, how is that? Because the gospel is that God is just and merciful. How? How can God be merciful and still enact justice? And the only possible answer is simply the cross. Because of Jesus Christ. Listen, the bad news is that you're a sinner and that God demands payment for that sin. 
The good news is that Jesus pays it for you. Right? We deserve hell. Jesus hung naked on a cross and experienced hell for us. He experienced separation from God. He experienced the full fury of God's wrath for our sin poured out on him. Right? The cross is the place where God's justice and God's mercy meet. It is Jesus went through hell to save sinners. And that is how hell demonstrates to us the love of God. He was willing to face it to rescue us. He went through it so that we don't have to. And that's the gospel. It is God's rescue of sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. And we don't do it. He does it for us. That is what grace is. It is a gift. So yes, hell exists. It is not intolerant or cruel to tell you about hell if it is real. Right? Jesus says that it is. And he says that he is the only way to escape it. Listen, you can't do it. You can't be good enough to impress a perfect God. That's a, that, I promise you, I'll go study every other religion. That is what every other religion will tell you. Why, you know, how can you be saved? How can you go to heaven? Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? They, the religion tells you, keep these rules, do these things, just have a little bit more good that, that outweighs your bad. And God will see that and be like, all right, pretty good job. You got 51%. Now you can go to heaven. Right? But it's just not how it works. He is perfect and he is righteous and his standard is 100% perfection. Religion says, do these things, be good enough, and God will save you. And the gospel says that you can't do it. The gospel says that you cannot be good enough, but that Jesus Christ can. Right? Do not just leave here terrified of hell. That will not move you toward faith. Uh, be warned. Uh, uh, Jesus wants to warn us. That is a good thing. But I ultimately want us to leave here amazed by the love of Jesus Christ for sinners. That is what leads to faith and to change and to salvation. Being amazed in and caught up in the great love and grace of Christ. He went through hell for you. Religion says be good enough and avoid hell. The gospel says you cannot be good enough, but that Jesus Christ was good enough for you. You deserve to go to hell. He went there for you, and he offers you freedom and forgiveness and life. He does it for us. That's the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. We deserve death. We get his life. We are sinners. He is righteous. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. Right? It is the great exchange. The gospel is so fundamentally different than what every other religion teaches. It is not do. It is done. It is what he has done for us. That is the difference. Guys, listen, Jesus is very clear. He says that hell is real, right? But so is he, right? Hell is for sinners. But listen to this. So is heaven, right? Sinners saved by the grace of God, right? You don't get to heaven by being perfect or by being good enough. You get to heaven by being a sinner saved by the grace of God. And that is the most freeing and liberating thing in the world. That it is not about our work. It is not about what we do. It is about what he has done for us. Right? 
Do you want to understand hell? Look at the cross. Okay? That's, where, that's where hell happened. And do you want to understand grace? Look at the cross. Right? Look at Jesus. That is a God that you can trust. A God who is willing to suffer and die and experience hell for us. That is a God that is worth loving and following. That is a God. That is the only God who can save you from hell. Right? And let's, let's turn to him and speak with him in prayer as, as we close. Father, we confess again our, our struggles with this difficult doctrine. Father, sometimes it simply does not make sense um, to us. Father, we confess also that you are God and that we are not. Um, and even when we do not understand, we thank you that, that your understanding is, is so far superior um, to our own. So, Father, we know um, that we are sinners. We, we cannot deny that. Father, we know um, that, that our sin deserves to be punished. But, Father, we thank you that there is uh, forgiveness um, at the cross. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You would be perfectly just in sending every one of us to hell. But instead, Father, you, you sent your Son to experience hell for us so that we wouldn't have to. Father, we thank you uh, for the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the free gift of salvation. Father, we do not work for it. We do not earn it, Father, but you freely give it to us because you are good and loving and kind. So, Father, I pray that we would, um, oh, you would open our eyes to the reality of hell. We would see it, and we would be warned by it, Father. But I pray that we would see so much clearly your great love and your great mercy and grace. Father, I pray that you would change us um, um, through that. Father, the, the rules and fear, those things cannot cause real lasting change, but love and grace can. So, Father, just fill us with your love. Open our eyes to understand what it is that you have done for us um, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you, um, we, even in a difficult passage and sermon like this, we thank you that you are still good, that you are speaking to us, and that you're gracefully warning us um, about, about the future. So, Father, work in this place. Um, bless and, and grow us in this church. Father, use us to proclaim these truths to, to this community. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.